Official volume check from Wednesday morning, okay. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in the word of God this morning to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll start off with something a little different, and then we will return back to uh, Luke chapter 2. We are examining the birth of Christ, a key element in what Paul develops in the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy with respect to the mystery of godliness, all the mystery doctrines pertaining to the church, and uh, quite a powerful passage in 1 Timothy 3.16. So we will begin our study this morning with 1 Timothy 3.16, then we will return back to uh, Luke and actually take uh, take you through the narrative of the event. Before we do any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the grace opportunity to assemble together this morning. We don't deserve to be here, and we're not... Uh, equipped to be here apart from your grace as we peer into the depths of your word as we peer into various aspects of mystery doctrine we realize that what you have chosen to reveal you choose to reveal by your grace and what you choose to remain hidden you choose to do so for your grace it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and we accept that we understand that at the same time father we're just humbled to understand that here in the dispensation of the church, we have the greatest amount of revelation given, ever given, to any believers of any age. We have the privilege and blessing to see the unfolding of your plan in the age of grace. We have the privilege and blessing to see, to have things made, made known to us that are described as things into which angels long to look. So, Father, as we just catch glimpses today of the infinite truth of your word, we ask that you would set aside distractions and give us insight and understanding. We thank you, Father, now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, First Timothy chapter 3. Paul says in verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This verse goes a long way in establishing a proper biblical approach to ecclesiology. What defines a church, a local church, and of course the church universal. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This being our common confession in the church universal. He who was revealed in the flesh. Now, of course, that's what we're dealing with, with the word became flesh. And we're studying this morning the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh, in the hum humility of his humanity, in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So as we go back to the manger scene here in a moment, Luke chapter 2, and we observe the humility of the humanity of the manger event, let's, in the back of our mind at least, keep this as a framework, as a part of the greatness of the mystery revelation. 
Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. And we will deal with some of that in terms of the vindication at the baptism event uh, that will be coming up here shortly. Seen by angels. We'll have a lot of angelic observations to make, starting with the uh, Bethlehem event, because he was born in the manger, but the angelic witness was out to the shepherds to bring in the angelic chorus to give us only the second time now in Scripture that we have uh, the actual hymn text of angelic music. And so uh, this becomes an important part, not just the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ as the God-man and the redemption of humanity. Covenant theology would place the redemption of humanity as the centerpiece of God's revelation. But God has a plan and program for the ultimate glorification of Jesus Christ that goes beyond the human realm. It incorporates the angelic realm as well. And so the dispensational approach to Scripture is a superior approach to the covenant approach to Scripture, um, for this, among many other reasons, proclaimed among the nations. The Gentiles, of course, there in view. Yes, he came to Israel. He was born in Israel. He himself was a Jew, born under the law. Uh, a significant part of his early ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, but there will come a point of time when that changes when the lost sheep of the house of Israel rejects their Messiah. He came to his home to his own and his own received him not. And we'll see that transition that occurs uh, when it occurs at the at that point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But a very important aspect that we're going to learn from this morning when uh, the angelic song and the angelic proclamation goes to the shepherds is that the role of God entering into the world was not just limited to the Jewish people. But he was, in fact, the savior of all humanity. And very quickly, uh, uh, that's going to be testified to the fact that the Gentile magi are going to arrive from the east and offer their worship, offer their devotion. And uh, so these things will come clear as well. All right. I realize I interrupt probably much more than I should. <laughs> Let me read verse 16, the whole verse, without interruption. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world cosmos, taken up in Glory. Alright? This is called the mystery of godliness. This is described as the great confession. Not uh, uh, different from the great commission, of course. This is the great confession. Separate entirely from Peter's great confession, which is usually thought of there in Matthew 16. But the mystery of godliness, the great confession, the hallmark of any local church ministry as far as our witness to this lost and dying world. Summarized here in 1 Timothy 3.16. Alright, keep that now in your mind as we return to the narrative, as we return to Luke chapter 2, that there is a tremendous amount of divine activity at work in the birth of this baby. Some babies take more work than others. <laughs> um, perhaps not least of which is actually to get born. We're waiting for Stephanie. <laughs> In any event, the birth of Jesus Christ incorporated so much divine activity 
in, in not only the conception, the virgin conception, and all that took place there between the Father and the Holy Spirit and all the issues there, but the actual bringing forth of the God-man, of God becoming flesh, of laying aside his privileges, of the kenosis, of the uh, entry into the world, and the fulfillment of promises that have been made from Genesis chapter 3 onward. And understanding that he is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, according to Revelation chapter 13. That the plan of God uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ included uh, and really was centered on this key uh, event, the obedience of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the Father's plan. So there's much more to examine than just simply a baby being born in a manger. All right. So Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus Christ. We have to this point... We left off with point four, focusing on the perfect timing. Point one, let me just read through here verses one through seven of Luke two. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We mentioned last week that an acceptable translation of this verse from the Greek would be this was before the census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And that's probably a better way to render that in um, synchronizing the, uh, the dates that are involved. Verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All right, these are the seven verses that we're focusing on. We gave you a bit of the, of the history and the uh, time development. Octavius, we can date him very well. Gaius Julius Caesar, Octavianus Augustus ruled the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. So he was the Caesar, he was the emperor at the birth of Christ, but he is no longer on the scene when Christ appears at uh, the River Jordan to be baptized. Uh, he has uh, Augustus is no longer the emperor of the Roman Empire at that point of time. So he's the emperor of Christ's birth, but not the emperor at Christ's death. Point two, we gave you a time frame for uh, Quirinius. Very well attested in secular sources and secular historical sources. Publius Sulpicius Quirinius served as the governor of Syria from 6 to 9 AD, but served Augustus in that region in various other capacities, dating all the way back to 12 BC. And some scholars are convinced that there were even, in fact, two governorships, that there was a governorship in 6 to 5 BC or 6 to 4 BC, uh, that is fairly well, it's a good guess, and there's, there's, uh, um, good reasons for assuming two governorships, but even without two governorships, it is uh, undeniable that he was in the region in a variety of capacities, putting down revolts, engaged in other uh, uh, land surveys, engaged in some taxation activities. So there's really no uh, issue there, particularly when you understand that verse 2 quite likely is best rendered. This was before the census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's no question that Quirinius had an established census in uh, 7 to 9 AD. We have no problem with that. Josephus references that. There are other historical documents to that. Uh, but we 
also reject the fact that this is a contradiction in the scripture because we believe the Bible. <laughs> Simple as that. So this was before the census taken while Crunius was governor in Syria. And uh, grammatically, this is an acceptable reading in verse 2, and it resolves the apparent contradiction between the issues there. See, the problem being is Herod dies in 4 BC. So Jesus can't be born during the life of Herod and during the governorship of Quirinius that, that they want to highlight, that is the 6 to 9 AD governorship of Quirinius. All of that we may comment on last week and you can review the MP3 if you'd like. Point three, Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem in order to register their Davidic property taxation. Very important to understand that typically they would not have to Although there were place, there were censuses in Egypt where the Roman government made the Egyptians go back to their uh, native land and register there. In other censuses, the Romans didn't care. They, they just taxed you where you were, didn't care where you were from or where you owned property. But in some circumstances, at least one documented circumstance in Egypt in uh, 13 BC, I believe it was, they required each Egyptian to return to the place where they held their property. As in the case here, uh, Joseph's Davidic inheritance would not be in Nazareth. His Davidic inheritance and land grant would be in Bethlehem, would be in the Ephrathah region of the hill country of Judah. And so he and Mary returned there to register their property for taxation. All of this, of course, seems to be coincidental, seems to be um, circumstances and details, but we understand under point four, the perfect timing of God is what's at work here. Determine this moment for the birth of the Christ child. This was the perfect moment. God the Father engineered the circumstances for the fulfillment of his promises that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. All right? Now, under this, we have started to see some points, and I believe I left off with... I gave you all of them, right? But we were so rapid, we didn't have a time to actually go through the text for ENF. Is that correct? Didn't I give you all the way through ENF last week? Okay. But we didn't specifically, I think, give the fullest comment on ENF. So let's just run through them again here this morning. First of all, A, Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of the time. Galatians 4.4, 4, the fullness of the time, singular. Galatians 4.4, 4. the humanity of Jesus Christ was introduced into physical life at the perfect event in the unfolding of the Father's plan and program for the ages. Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of the time came, Jesus Christ came, born of a, of a virgin, born under the law. In the perfection of the Father's plan, Isaiah 25.1, it does not speak to the virgin birth, but it does speak to the perfection of the Father's plan and all that he does. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Everything the Father does is perfect because he himself is perfect. Point B, Bethlehem fulfills the geographic birthplace prophecy. And this was undisputed. There may have been prior to this time, there may have been some debates, but those debates were long settled. The rabbinic debates were long settled, so that by the time Herod calls in his advisors, the universal uh, admission is that Bethlehem is the birthplace. There's other geographic prophecies that include Egypt. Out of Egypt I will call my son, it says in Hosea 11. Uh, Galilee, the light will shine forth. Uh, you know, whereas in former days uh, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. Uh, there is actually blessing in terms of light shining forth out of Galilee of the Gentiles. That's a geographic prophecy that's made in Isaiah chapter 9. 
Likewise, there are Basra references. Those are Edomite references. Goodness gracious, what do you do with those ge- ge- uh, geography promises? Isaiah 63, 1-6. Those obnoxious boxes are supposed to be dashes. Isaiah 63, 1-6. So there's a Basra geographical reference in prophetic scripture looking ahead to the treading of the wine press and coming in garments stained in red and the victory, the military victory that he achieves and the crushing of his enemies. So with all of these geographic prophecies, you might think, okay, there's there's debate or there's confusion or what do we do with Bethlehem? What do we do with Galilee? What do we do with Egypt? What do we do with Basra? All right? And as prophetic students... Put yourselves back now in the Old Testament where none of this has been fulfilled yet. They have to look ahead and anticipate, well, how does this work? Is God contradicting himself or do we find different events for these locations? How is this going to work? And the universal agreement was with respect to everything else that calling from Hosea 11 or military activity like Isaiah 63 or light shining events such as Isaiah 9 did not necessarily pertain to a birth. And so universal agreement was with respect to the birth of their Messiah was the Micah prophecy of Micah 5.2. And so when Herod asked the advisors, they are unanimous in Matthew chapter 2 that the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so uh, Herod sends and has all the uh, boys murdered there in Bethlehem and we will be examining that here shortly. We understand, of course, that all of the prophecies are fulfilled perfectly, that uh, the Egypt prophecy, the Galilee prophecy, the Bethlehem prophecy were all first advent, all fulfilled. And the second, the uh, Basra prophecy is still waiting future fulfillment when he comes to conquer the battle of Armageddon at second advent is when the Basra prophecy of Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 will be fulfilled. And I don't think you can claim that any other way if you're going to treat Revelation 19 fairly and uh, and view those events as being eschatological rather than being uh, symbolic or being fulfilled in the church as the Roman church likes to do. All right, point C then. The Davidic lineage is fulfilled. The Davidic lineage is fulfilled. This was a promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, prophets afterwards would make reference to it, such as Isaiah in chapter 9 and such as Psalm 132.11. The Davidic lineage fulfilled. And these are important not only for our study this morning, but I think for our overall approach to the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. This with respect to the light shining forth from Galilee of the Gentiles in Isaiah chapter 9. With respect to the child born to us, a son given to us in verse 6. So join me in Isaiah 9 because that applies not only here in C, but it also applies in point E momentarily. Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. 
take this and tie it in with John chapter 1 with the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. This is with reference to the word becoming flesh, the light entering into this world of darkness. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors as at the battle of Midian. Okay, now keep in mind, the light is shining in the darkness, but did they accept the light? They hated the light, for their deeds were evil. He came to his own, and his own received him not. The kingdom was freely offered, but Israel rejected it. They wanted the bonds broken off, surely. They wanted Rome to be done away with. They wanted a political deliverance, absolutely. But the light shining in darkness? Oh, no, no. They craved the darkness. So, we recognize that light shining in darkness fulfilled first advent? Sure. Christ was revealed, the light shone in the darkness, but he was rejected. Did he deliver them from the Roman bondage? No. He delivered them from much greater bondage, the bondage of sin, by going to the cross, removing the sin of the world. What an, what an even greater bondage. All right? Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. We recognize that was fulfilled in the Bethlehem event. The child was born, but a son was given. Keep in mind, the child was born, that marks the beginning of his physical life in a human body. But a son given, indicating, of course, that he pre-existed before Abraham was born. I am, God the son pre-existed, the baby in the manger. So both are fulfilled. A child is born and a son is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, that's second advent. He didn't take any political reign in first advent. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, they called him Rabbi, but they didn't call him Wonderful Counselor in first advent. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles that are awaiting future um, acceptance when he steps in to fulfill these ministries. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So understanding that, that there is much more yet to be done that the Christ has yet to accomplish then he will accomplish them in his second advent work. But first advent, the responsibility was to go to the cross and redeem the uh, human race. What's the point in establishing the Davidic throne if it's going to be over a bunch of sinners? They're going to reject him and, and hate him. Now, in the same uh, context here, we have verse 7 that's mentioned there. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, the lineage, the Davidic lineage is vital. The opportunity, the necessity for Jesus Christ to be able to trace his lineage back to David was crucial. This cannot be done today. In fact, this has not been able to be done by anybody since 70 A.D. when Titus destroyed the temple and destroyed the temple records. Jesus Christ in 30 A.D. or 32 A.D. or 33 A.D. could step forward and claim to be the legal heir of David. And he could track 
<laughs> he could run through the genealogy like my kids can do now and, and go from David to Solomon to Rehoboam and all the way down through Jeconiah, the last one to serve as king, and then pass on through Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and I'm going to embarrass myself if I try to do the rest of that list. All right? I've got to get Christopher out here to run it through for you here this morning. He's got it down cold. He can do it backwards. In any event, Christ could do that. They could not deny his Davidic lineage. The best they could do was say, well, yeah, but you were illegitimate. Your parents weren't married. They, you know, they, they fooled around before marriage and she got pregnant and they had to move the wedding date up and you're just, you know, a, a bastard. Okay? Didn't bother Christ any. Because <laughs> A, it wasn't true. And I think B, by virtue of the fact that his genealogy in Matthew includes uh, Rahab the harlot and Tamar who played the harlot and Bathsheba who was the adulteress, I think, you know, the whole... He's got, he's got three documented, biblically documented uh, lascivious women in his, in his uh, genealogy anyway. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the insult of the virgin didn't really, didn't really sweat him any. What we're saying, though, here in verse 7 is that his link to the Davidic throne was undeniable and it was necessary, absolutely necessary, because God made promises to David. And if God can break those promises, then, then none of us have any kind of hope. Okay? This, I think, is the thrust of Psalm 132 and elsewhere. 132. Let's look at that 132nd Psalm. It begins with, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. All right, and down to verse 11, but the specific request in verse 10, for the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. See, Israel in the years following David could call to the Lord for his faithfulness on David's behalf. Not because they deserved it, not because they were very deserving or special. I mean, let's face it, after David came Solomon. We know what his reign was like and the crash and burn failure of his life. And then the divided kingdom, south and north, the northern kingdom never had a good king. They were all idolaters from Jeroboam down to the end. All right? The southern kingdom kept going back and forth between good kings and bad kings, and even the ones that were good were only sort of good. They weren't entirely like David, their father. And yet, in the generations after, they could call upon the Lord to be faithful because he made promises to David. Not because they deserved it, but because he made promises to David. As it says here, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Remember, God made a promise. It's an unconditional covenant, an unconditional promise. And believers today need to understand the Davidic covenant, I think, more than ever before. Because of all the confusion that's out there and the whole desire to replace Israel with the church. The whole idea that, well, Israel blew it and God scrapped that whole thing and now he's bringing the church in and now we're going to fulfill all these things. It is so evil and so insidious. The idea that God can just scrap it and go back on a promise? Can he really do that? My Bible says he can't do that. So his promises to David are still in effect. He's going to fulfill those promises. He is looking yet future to fulfill those promises. Jesus Christ considered them still yet future promises. He said they're going to happen. But they're yet future promises. 
Be very cautious. If you have friends or neighbors or people that start giving you all this stuff, uh, in other words, they're blurring Israel and the church, that's dangerous. If they start to blur Israel and the church and they start to talk about how the church replaces Israel or where the New Testament Israel, they try to find a, one random verse in the New Testament that talks about the Israel of God and they start to try to go into how we're replacing Israel, um, they're on some pretty shaky ground. And you might, you might be led by the Spirit to challenge them on it and ask them about it and say, well, gee, how could you have faith in such a liar like that? If God could lie to David and just scrap that whole plan for Israel, then, then he's a liar. And if he's such a liar, then how, come, how can you and I be even saved in the first place? What's to stop him with looking at the church and saying, well, you guys are a mess. What a dirty, rotten failure. I think I'll scrap you and start over with something else. If he, if he can just go ahead and, and, you know, roll up a program and chunk it behind his back and say, well, forget it, I'm going to start over. What's to, what's to keep him from doing that to the church? Because we know the church is apostate and going worse. Scripture says so. Obviously, he can't. He has to be faithful to promises, which is what, in, in a lot of ways, what uh, focusing on the, the birth of Christ helps us to do. It helps us to see the promises and how faithful he was to bring them about. So the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set up your throne. Okay? And the issue is there. Now, there's... I don't want to confuse you by looking at the conditional statement in verse 12. If your sons will keep my covenant, realizing that Solomon did for a while, then he peeled off, Rehoboam peeled off, uh, uh, Jehoshaphat was a good king, Hezekiah was a good king, but Manasseh was an evil king, and there was some back and forth. But it does not change the unconditional promise. Their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. And then the greater son shall sit forever. The prophecies that are made, if you examine Second Samuel 7 and verse 12, it is an eternal, unconditional covenant, and one that really needs to be embraced and understood by believers today. Point D. The virgin's son fulfilled the virgin prophecy. Does that go without saying? Isaiah 7.14 Of all the promises that he would be of the seed of the woman, that he would be a descendant of Shem, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would be of the tribe of Judah, that he would be of the family of David. We've narrowed the scope each and every way. All right? We've narrowed the scope each and every time. The seed of the woman simply makes him a human being with a mom. Okay? <laughs> Although, you can even find an inference to the... to virginity uh, by the term seed of the woman itself because we understand that it's the men that have seed and the women that accept the seed that fertilizes the egg and baby gets born. The idea of seed of a woman? Wait a minute. So even that term has a hint of virgin birth. doesn't totally, of course, break out the doctrine, but it hints and alludes to it. Uh, but seed of a woman doesn't narrow down the field at all. It simply looks to a human being that's going to be born that's going to crush the serpent's head. But the God of Shem now narrows the scope, to, uh, excludes two-thirds of the human race, and focuses our attention on the line of Shem, of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the descendants of Noah. We we're looking to the line of Shem to produce that seed of the woman, the kinsman redeemer of the human race. And then with the calling of Abraham, we're not looking at all the Semitic people anymore. We're looking at Abraham. Okay? Otherwise, I mean, we could 
Look at one of the Assyrians. Asher was a was a was a descendant of Shem. Did you know that? You know, the Assyrians were as wicked and evil as there's ever been on the face of the earth. We're not looking for an Assyrian to arise and be the Messiah. We're looking for a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob. And then within Jacob's 12 tribes, we can rule out 11 of those 12 tribes and focus on the tribe of Judah. But just in case Judah's not specific enough, with all of the clans within Judah, some of which got pretty dominant. You know, Caleb's descendants that, that settled in, in Hebron, they became, they became very dominant as far as their population within the, within the uh, tribe of Judah and why Hebron was the capital of Judah and all of that, it was Caleb's clan that, that really, uh, uh, after the conquest, that really came to dominate the tribe. Ephrathah was a tiny little clan. In fact, it was so little it wasn't even considered a clan. And yet, the son of uh, Jesse was then lifted up as a man after God's own heart, made king over Israel, and it was his descendants then that were promised to be the line of Christ, were promised to be the birth of the, of the expected Messiah. So we've narrowed it down to a dinky clan within one tribe, within a nation, where we're looking for a Davidic heir to be the Christ. And not just any Davidic heir, Isaiah is the final, Isaiah 7.14 is the final um, Restriction that's placed, we're looking for a Davidic virgin. Because it says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Alright, so we're not just looking for any descendant of David, we're looking for a Davidic virgin to be pregnant and bear a child. Then, in, the, in, in Bethlehem, <laughs> then Israel will understand that this is their Christ. Should be cut and dried. <laughs> and for those who are positive at God consciousness and gospel hearing, it was obvious. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's proclaimed by prophets. John the baptizer heralded him. The Spirit descended. It was obvious. The prophetess Anna in the temple. It was obvious. He had the two and three witnesses and there was no dispute about every fact having been confirmed. We'll show that for you here too when they go to the temple, why it was that there was Simeon and Anna, why there were two witnesses there. Well, because that was what was expected under the law, that everything would be so confirmed. So the virgin son fulfilled the virgin prophecy. Obviously, this is important. We, I don't have, do I have those notes up here? At some point in previous lessons, we went into a study on the virgin, you remember that? And gave you reasons why the virgin birth was necessary. Not least of which is the fact that he had to be sinless and perfect. He could not have a human father because he could not receive Adam's original sin. He could not have the sins of the father bestowed upon him in terms of the, the uh, sin nature that is passed from father to son. So virgin birth is important for that reason. Virgin birth was also important to be A, a descendant of David, the legal heir of David, and yet B, not a descendant of Jeconiah, because Jeconiah was cursed. Virgin birth, very important there too. So if you miss those classes, um, I'll see if I can go back over my notes and figure out which classes those were when we spotlighted why it was so important for Jesus to be virgin born, because that was... A significant study there as well. All right. Then point E, the child born and son given prophecies fulfilled. We discussed that a moment ago from Isaiah 9 6. The child born and son given. Yes, the baby was born, but he pre existed that 
infancy of the human body. Remember the verse in Hebrews that says, A body thou hast prepared for me. God the Son pre-existed because he pre-existed for all eternity as God the Son. But he entered into the body that was prepared for him by his Father through the impregnation procedure over or within the Virgin Mary. So a child was born, a son was given. And don't, don't confuse this because so many of the New Agers like to talk about, well, they like to take this concept and apply it to everybody and say that, well, yeah, you pre-existed too. I pre-existed too. You know, we have these eternal souls. We just kind of drifted. And then at some point, lo and behold, we were reborn into, you know, the wombs of our mothers when we were, uh, you know, when we were born into the world. Very New Agey. That uh, the, the pre-existence of souls and things is not biblical. Only with respect to Jesus Christ is that biblical. And finally, point F. The manger and cloth wrappings provided an immediate sign for the contemporary witnesses. And I listed this here. We're also going to examine it in the next section. So we can look at it here in Luke 2. I also included it in the next section as well, the proclamation of the birth by the angels to the shepherds. Uh, but returning now to Luke 2, that with this baby here in the manger, prophecies are being fulfilled that date back centuries. The virgin prophecy goes back 300 years to, to uh, or 700 years to 700 BC. The uh, Davidic descendant prophecy goes back a thousand years. The seed of the woman prophecy goes back 4,000 years. All of these prophecies have been around for ages and ages and ages. Uh, but the immediate sign, the immediate witness, takes place here. In verses six and seven. Or verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You say, well, that, what a bummer. <laughs> you know, how, uh, how terrible. What, uh, what rotten conditions. Okay, and we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us if it was a dirty, rotty, rotten, nasty, stinking, filthy manger. Or if it was a relatively clean location. doesn't say. Just said it was a food trough, it was a manger, it was a place where animals are kept. Might be clean, might not be clean. Doesn't say. But it's significant because it is unique. It is an unexpected place. It's not where uh, a, a you know newborn pa uh, baby is expected to be found with the brand new parents. And because of those unusual circumstances, it's going to provide the father an opportunity to go get some other witnesses to come... Um, to come and testify to this event. And that's what happens with these shepherds. They're out in the fields. We'll see them here shortly, keeping watch over their flock by night. They live out there. They're full-time residents of those fields, and we'll deal with that. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. We'll go into the specific message here in our next section. But verse 12, this will be a sign for you. This is the miraculous evidence, the testimony that you could observe with your own eyes that you will understand what we're saying is true. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. You know, like how likely is that going to happen? You mean we're going to go into Bethlehem right now, we're going to find this manger, and there's going to be a baby in there? What are you talking about? Okay? 
God is organizing the circumstances so that he can go get his witnesses so that they will come and testify to the faithfulness of the message. And then there's the heavenly host praising God and saying the song of the heavenly host. All right, so we will deal with that here too. But the manger and cloth wrappings provided an immediate sign for the contemporary witnesses. Keep in mind, when we do more prophetic studies, that quite often, both with the Old Testament studies and the New Testament studies, in terms of prophecy, there were long-term prophecies given in many cases, but also short-term prophecies that were given, immediate signs that were given, things that could be observed by those that were right there on the scene. See, nobody that, that, that Isaiah spoke to when he said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Nobody, much, you know, King Ahaz or anyone else, wasn't going to say, Oh, really? And then wait around for 700 years and watch it unfold. Alright? Nobody was going to do that. But they would observe the short-term fulfillment. They would observe the nations that they were terrified of be driven off and, and be no longer a threat. They would observe that. They would see the short-term signs fulfilled. They would see Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah have have a baby. Okay. They would see short prophecies fulfilled, and that was the the immediate testimony that says, okay, long-term prophecies are going to be fulfilled too. We'll accept that by faith. So the manger and the cloth wrappings. God the Father is providing these circumstances, and they're going to become undeniable. They're going to become undeniable. The Pharisees, I'm going to have a lot of fun with the Pharisees because they're just so pathetic, all right? So prideful, so arrogant, so knowledgeable, and so wrong, so uh, satanically motivated and so wrong. And yet, their knowledge betrays them because... uh, Nicodemus will come and say, we know you're you're from God because no one can do these signs right here. Miracles, signs. You couldn't be doing these unless God was with you. Nicodemus confesses that, admits that. Admits that, uh, like with a man born blind, the the Pharisees said, you know, we've got a real problem here. (laughs) Because everybody knows this is an amazing miracle that's taking place. We're trying to put this man to death for being a heretic and, and all of Jerusalem understands he's a great man of God doing these wonderful miracles. And it bugged him to death, especially since they weren't doing any miracles. <laughs> you know? They had a little bit of exorcism they could do. And I think Christ nailed them on that with uh, the fact they were dabbling with some demons a little bit. And uh, so they accused him of doing the same thing. They said, well, he's just using the power of Beelzebub to cast out demons. I think Christ exposed them there in that passage. They weren't doing any miracles. And they hated him for it. So these signs and these testimonies are, are, are undeniable. They, the shepherds are out there in the field and the angel shows up and says, this is what you're going to find. And they race right to the scene and lo and behold, that's what they found. Well, how about that? The angel knew what he was talking about. We saw a legitimate angel. Okay? And uh, that must mean that we can trust everything else the angel had to say. The angel said that this was Christ the Lord. The angel said this was a Savior that was born for us in Bethlehem. The angel said that, in fact, the whole angelic chorus started singing the praises. The the, the miracles were designed to um, instill the importance of the message, that you would listen to the message. The shepherds did. Later on, we're going to see that the Jews most often did not. They loved the, the miracle, Multiplying loaves, that's great. Feed us again. 
But don't bother us with that message about you are the bread of heaven that descends out. You know, no, we don't care about that. We don't want the message. Forget the teaching. Just feed us. Do another miracle. So, we have the contemporary witness. All right. In our time remaining, let's look at the next paragraph since we're at it. Let's look at the angelic proclamation proclaimed by the angels. Great is the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, seen by angels. We're going to observe angelic activity surrounding Christ from beginning to end. As a matter of fact, a, a thorough study on angelology has, has to include the angelic sphere that surrounded the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because we've already seen Gabriel in his announcement to Zacharias, his announcement to Mary, his announcement to uh, Joseph. Now we have the announcement to these shepherds. So there's a lot of announcing going on. But angels are involved in, in the, the whole heavenly host that appears here and sings, the choir of the heavenly host. The angels that appear throughout Christ's life strengthening him. After his temptation, when the devil departed for a more opportune time, the angels came and ministered to him. Angels were involved in ministering to the physical needs of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And uh, you better believe, if we want to have an understanding of how our uh, guardian angels work, uh, this is a good place to turn to, to see what they did for Jesus when he was tempted, when he was undergoing angelic conflict. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities. And we want to understand how that works. How can an angel be taken prisoner, by the way? Gabriel was taken prisoner when he tried to go and minister to, to Daniel. So there's things that uh, that have to be included here. I thought the movie The Passion did a very good job showing the adversary there, the devil, in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Christ was praying, you know, uh, not my will but thine be done, when he was sweating the great drops of blood, the devil was prowling about there. Even the, uh, when it comes right down to it, even the the shouting of come down from that cross was a temptation. He could have come down off the cross and not finished the work. He could have ended the suffering. He could have disobeyed the Father. Come down from the cross was, uh, was a temptation. A lot of ways that the angels were involved. Even uh, to the extent of the, uh, as Pastor Theme taught, the warfare that uh, attempted to prevent the return into heaven, that attempted to prevent the, the ascension. And the things, it's been years since I've had that study, but, uh, but Theme taught that years ago, the angelic attack to try to prevent the, the uh, ascension and the things there. All right. Verses 8 and following. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord, suddenly stood before them. So what I was trying to say a moment ago is that angels are involved all throughout the life of Christ. Before his birth, at his birth, throughout his whole life, angels were witnessing and observing. Up to and including the death, up to and including the uh, the resurrection. When, when Mary rushed to the tomb and the stone was rolled away and the angels were sitting there, okay? Why do you seek the living one among the dead and all of that? Angels were involved, witnessing every single event. And an angel of the Lord stood suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them 
And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. It's a tough verse to to, uh, translate, but peace among men of good will. When the angels had gone away they began, uh, from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And what do you know? Everything was as advertised. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. They had the opportunity to witness that which they had been uh, informed And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. I mean, think about it. And now all who heard it. All. There's more than just Joseph and Mary here. Okay? All. There there are other witnesses here as well. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. All of this happened... I believe that very night, because then we see eight days passing in verse 21. This was on the very night. It says, um, for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior. So this is all happening within that first day of the birth of Jesus Christ. All right. Do we know what time of day he was born? (laughs) You know, was he born like me? I thought I was very... Helpful for my mom, born at 3.23 in the afternoon, so that was a very good mid-afternoon type birth and so forth. I thought, that well, that was real nice, and then my mom said no, actually, because my water broke and I was in labor from like 3 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning and all that, lost all that sleep and all that morning and all that day, and finally 12 hours later he got born. So that mid-afternoon wasn't the, it wasn't the sweet event that I thought it was anyway. We don't know. Was he born at, at nighttime, daytime? It just says the time was completed. She gave birth, laid him in a manger. But it was nighttime when the angels appeared to the shepherds. And yet they said, the single angel here said, Today, for today, in the city of David, there has been born for you. So it's hard to say. You know, an angel shows up in your bedroom, say at 3 a.m., wakes you up, and says, Today. Well, what's he talking about? Is he talking about. You know, when you use a word like today at 3 a.m., does that narrow it down? <laughs> Are you talking about the day that just started, which for us began at midnight, for the Jews began at sundown? Was it early? Was it really yesterday? Because it's the middle of the night when he says today. Does it really mean sometime yesterday? Okay, not entirely certain, and, and really rather irrelevant. Um, we'll talk about some of the chronolo- uh, chronological aspects of this. Was this really December 25th? Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, there's a lot of work to be done on chronology, and at some point we will tackle this. Uh, I just don't know when. Probably, I almost included it in the in the introduction, but we did so much with genealogy and things, and I thought, no, let's just go ahead and get into the event. We'll probably tackle uh, chronology when we get to the Passion Week, and we'll talk about the day of his death. We'll talk about the year of his death and the whole 
chronology of his life at that point of time. All right, sub point one, or I'm sorry, main point one. Shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. We have some remarkable uh, details that come out in the vocabulary of this verse. They were staying out in the fields. They were living out in the fields. This is where they lived. This was their full-time occupation. This wasn't just a single night camp out. This wasn't just a seasonal thing either, although I guess you could think of it seasonally. The verb is a present active participle of agraleo, A-G-R-A-U-L-E-O. It's a present active participle of agraleo, A-G-R-A-U-L-E-O, number 63 in your Strong's Index. This is a hapax, that is, it is the only place in the New Testament that agraleo is used, is right here in Luke 2, 8. But we have the concept of it presented for us in Genesis 31:40, as Joseph or as Jacob rather describes what his life has been like for 20 years, serving Laban. Genesis 31:40. Jacob is describing his manner of life in serving Laban. And this gives us an idea of the career path <laughs> of a shepherd, one who is a full-time shepherd, and the out-of-doors existence that they live. Genesis 31.40, um, Jacob became angry and contended with Laban in verse 36. Verse 38 says, These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. That was a very real you know, danger out there in the fields. You uh, required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. See, it's a 24-hour occupation. It's around the clock. That's why shepherds are told the shepherd in season or out of season. You know, whether they want to have their ears tickled, whether the flock wants to hear it or not, you've got to keep shepherding. Thus I was, and here's the description in verse 40, by day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. It's a good description of a full-time outdoor shepherd. And that's what we have here in Luke chapter 2. In that same region, there were some shepherds, and these shepherds were agraleoing they were agroleoing, all right. The verb being agroleo, it being a present active participle. This is the continuous action in present time. This was their manner of life. They lived out there, keeping watch, keeping watch. Interestingly enough, the uh, the phrase "keeping watch" fulacentus fulacus uses a verb and a noun of the same word, like guarding guard. Watching watch. We have the same thing in English. Watch is a verb. If I'm watching, you know, a babysitter comes over and watches your children. Or you could think of it a watch in the night as a period of time or a noun or an event. Keeping watch, I think, is weak because it doesn't double the word. The word is doubled. Fulocentus, fulicus. 
You have the verb and you have the noun that are indeed cognate forms. So you would say guarding the guard, watching their watch. So that you understand that the, uh, the language here doubles up the activity of what they're doing. They're vigilant. They're on the alert. Subpoint A. The Jewish people anticipated the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem for scriptural reasons. Micah 5.2 I'm going to have to close with this. So, I mean, they knew they were in Bethlehem, the Bethlehem region. That wasn't a news flash to these shepherds. But they also knew something else, or suspected something else, I should say. So, point B, the Jewish people also anticipated the Messiah to be revealed from Migdal Eder, Tower of the Sheep, Tower of the Flock. And I just have no time this morning to get into this. But I will read a citation from Edersheim, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. We will also give a citation from the Jewish Targums, specifically the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan. He had a commentary. That Targum was a commentary on Genesis 35.21 that referenced this uh, location for the proclamation of the coming Messiah. So we'll talk about that there as well. A part of the Jewish expectations. That's not biblical, but it was an expectation that they had. And so, uh, lo and behold, the father goes out and he gets some shepherds here at this Migdal later and brings them in to be witnesses. Because that was the expectation the Jewish people had. I find that to be remarkable as well. God was not only fulfilling his own promises <laughs> and his own scriptures, but he went to go get witnesses consistent with their own expectations. So, something for you to chew on in the next week as we get back to this issue. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. And thank you for promises that you make and promises that you keep and promises that you don't need our help in keeping for our salvation, Father, and acted upon what are called better promises. What a delight. What a delight, Father, to be called by your grace, to be uh, placed in Christ, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, to be given all things necessary for life and godliness, indeed to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing about our growth. Thank you for working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And we thank you for all these things. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.